Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about benzodiazepines and their pharmacology and how they've currently become increasingly used for a wide variety of clinical indications. So for those of you who don't know, benzodiazepines are sedative and hypnotic agents that have been in clinical use largely from the 1960s and have kind of got increasing popularity over the last few decades and taken over from older drugs such as barbiturates. Fergal, could you talk to us a bit about the pharmacology um, and structure of benzodiazepines? So benzodiazepines are really benzene rings associated with diazepine moieties. And they are functionally positive allosteric modulators of the GABA-A receptor. So really, we need to understand what GABA is, and then we need to understand what the GABA-A receptor looks like so that we can then truly understand how a benzodiazepine works. So Philippe, you know, tell us about GABA. Sure. So GABA is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in, in the brain. And essentially, GABA has kind of two main receptors, GABA-A and GABA-B. And benzodiazepines are thought to work on, on GABA-A receptors. And just going on a bit more from what you said about the structure of benzodiazepines, can you tell us a bit more about how they interact with the GABA-A receptor, Fergal? So the GABA-A receptor is a ligand-gated chloride channel. And it is, uh, it's got five domains, and these five domains wrap around together to form a central pore. So it's like sticking a straw into a milkshake. The straw penetrates the froth and then hits the, the liquid beneath. And that's basically what the GABA-A receptor looks like. Now, I said there were five parts to the GABA-A receptor, and they all join together to form the straw. Benzodiazepines bind to that, that space, which is the junction of two different uh, functional domains of the GABA-A receptor. The border of the alpha-1 and the gamma-2 domain, that's where you have the benzodiazepine binding site. Now, I've said to you that it's a positive allosteric modulator of GABA-A. Now, what does that mean? It means that it doesn't actually um, bind to the GABA receptor. It doesn't actually bind to the GABA binding site. It binds elsewhere. But what it does is it facilitates the action of GABA so that when there's a GABA molecule in a bind, bind to the receptor, and then when there's a benzodiazepine molecule bind to the receptor, it enhances the effect of the GABA binding. And when you get chloride channel opening, you get a large amount of chloride, which is a negatively charged ion, transferring from the outside of the cell into the inside of the cell. And so this negative charge enters the cell, causes a hyperpolarization, which basically means it's much, more, it's much less liable to activation. And so when we're talking about neuronal tissue, because uh, you know, benzos act in the brain and on the nervous tissue, this hyperpolarization causes an inhibition. So there's two things to emphasize there. 
Benzodiazepines facilitate the action of GABA on GABA A receptors. They do not in and of themselves work uh, to influence chloride channel opening. And that's different to barbiturates. So barbiturates are not positive allosteric modulators. They can actually open the chloride channel themselves even when there's no GABA present. And that's why barbiturates were so dangerous because even in the absence of GABA, you could actually overdose and kill yourself on um, on barbiturates, whereas benzos actually need GABA to work. So if there's no GABA in the um, on the receptor, then no amount of benzodiazepine is going to work. So therefore, it's more easy to overcome the inhibitory effect of benzodiazepines on GABA A receptors, which is why the ben which is why benzodiazepines are less lethal. So it's a positive allosteric modulator. And it works by increasing the frequency of chloride channel opening, thereby causing a hyperpolarization of nervous tissue, which then makes that nervous tissue less reactive and responsive, i.e. it causes an inhibition in the brain. That's a really great summary of, of the mechanism of how benzodiazepines work, Fergal. And I guess if I were to ask another question, which is, the term benzodiazepine is, is a class term. It's not a specific drug. There are a lot of different types of benzodiazepines. And the potency of different benzodiazepines is also quite different as well, as is their half-life and their effects. Could you speak a bit more about the effects of the short-acting benzodiazepines and long-acting benzodiazepines and their mm. potency? Uh, just because... In clinical practice, sometimes I've seen people try and chop and change between benzodiazepines, assuming roughly that different types of benzodiazepines are the same strength or are, have the same efficacy when uh, nothing could be further from the truth, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the benzodiazepine family is a, is, is a large family and they don't all do the same things. And... Really, whilst they all um, whilst they all increase the frequency of chloride channel opening on the GABA A receptor, their their duration of action influences their their function. So, as you say, we've got short acting benzodiazepines and long acting benzodiazepines and intermediate benzodiazepines. The longest acting benzodiazepine that we have is actually diazepam. So everyone knows diazepam Valium. Now, it's a long-acting benzodiazepine, so it's useful for the prevention of seizures, especially in withdrawal management, especially in hypnosedative withdrawal management, and it's useful in anxiety disorders. So, you know, that's why you would have, you know, someone taking benzodiazepines, you know, once or twice a day for the management of anxiety. The, sh the really short-acting benzodiazepines include things like uh, lorazepam, um, now, lorazepam, its half-life, sorry, if I go back to diazepam, the, di the half-life of diazepam is about 100 hours, certainly in young people. The half-life of lorazepam is, up, is between 12 and 16 hours, so it's much, much shorter. And so it's used to treat more short-term anxiety, and it's used to treat, or it can be used to treat, um, you know, um, withdrawal, but it has to be repeatedly given. You can't, you don't have the same flexibility. Oxazepam, 
uh, is also a commonly used agent in withdrawal because it doesn't have phase two metabolism. Sorry, it doesn't have phase one metabolism, but we'll go into that in a second. So the half-life of oxazepam is four to 15 hours. So again, whilst it's at the lower end, it's much less than the lorazepam. It's about 12 to 15 hours, which is similar to lorazepam. And again, that's a relatively short-acting benzodiazepine, and that's also used in withdrawal, but again, for different reasons. Then we have the intermediate-acting uh, uh, benzodiazepines, which are anything from uh, uh, temazepam, clonazepam. So the temazepam half-life can be um, 5 to 15 hours. Uh, nitrazepam has a half-life of um, up to um, 20 hours, and clonazepam has a half-life of up to 50 hours. So again, we're seeing... Uh, Temazepam and nitrazepam used for the, main, the induction and maintenance of sleep. So it's a kind of an intermediate half-life, whereas clonazepam is used for epilepsy. And then in some, in some countries in the world, it's also used for uh, withdrawal management. The ultra-short-acting Z drugs, they're really used for the induction of sleep. They're not, um, they're not used for the maintenance of sleep. So things like zopiclone uh, or uh, zolpidem. They have very short half-lives, and so really it's to get to sleep, not to maintain sleep. I think you've raised quite a few interesting points in terms of some of the clinical effects, especially of, of the benzodiazepines. And I think also it comes to, I think as prescribers, uh, one of the things we always worry about is, say, the lethality of the medication that we're, we're using or how dangerous um, would one benzodiazepine be compared to another and how can we prescribe, say, safely for a patient? And sometimes people are concerned about being on one benzodiazepine more so than another. And ultimately, I think um, it, it comes to the fact that w there's no, say, single dose per se that that is definitely going to be lethal for, for benzodiazepines. Obviously, if you start someone on a super high dose of any benzodiazepine, that is totally unadvisable and would probably cause respiratory mm. depression. But it does come down, I guess, from what you were saying as well, Fergal, to the fact that um, you cannot, you cannot um, assume someone on clonazepam will react to, say, lorazepam or diazepam um, or oxazepam in a, in a similar manner. You have to try and get a dose equivalence for these um, different benzodiazepines to ensure safety. Is that, is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. So we need to do, we do need to talk about dose equivalence. So like five milligrams of Valium is not the same as five milligrams of lorazepam. So it's really important to understand dose equivalence that you can have you know, the number on the packet is not the same. For anyone who's listening is not uh, sufficiently knowledgeable on, about benzodiazepines. The numbers are meaningless. So five milligrams of lorazepam is significantly more powerful than five milligrams of diazepam. And, uh, you know, five milligrams of clonazepam is even more powerful than five milligrams of um, diazepam. And so we do have this concept of diazepam equivalency uh, and so really what we've, what we've tried to do is actually, you know, work out a, a rough estimate of how much, how many milligrams of a certain benzodiazepine is equivalent to five milligrams of diazepam. Would you care to talk about that then, Philippe? 
There are a variety of tables out there. Um, I usually use the South Australian Health Table, but you, there's tables on UpToDate. There's tables on, I'd say most learned institutions would have their own uh, table, and they're all roughly similar. Yeah. I think the take-home message is do not assume the milligram of whatever benzodiazepine you are prescribing is equivalent to any other milligram of any other type of benzodiazepine. Yeah. Five milligrams of diazepam is definitely not the same as five milligrams of clonazepam. Depending on which table <laughs> you're using, we're talking about dose ranges that are four to five times higher. So you can cause serious harms if you think you're giving someone the same amount of benzodiazepines if you're just changing between the different subtypes of benzodiazepines. So I think if you learn, if you leave this episode with no further, um, Take home message, uh, just use a benzodiazepine dose equivalence table uh, if you are switching between benzodiazepines. Uh, so uh, these tables are usually easy to find. If you were to Google benzodiazepine equivalence table, I'm sure you'd get um, a table that would uh, be quite suitable. Like I said, I use a South Australian health table. I'm sure you use probably a similar or slightly different version, Fergal, but all these tables will kind of help you figure out an appropriate dose, especially if you're transitioning a patient uh, or weaning a patient. Usually when we wean people off um, benzodiazepines, we convert them to an equivalent dose of diazepam and then wean the diazepam. So you convert, even if people are on multiple different doses or multiple different types of benzodiazepines, we convert them all to a single dose of diazepam usually and then wean from there. But yeah, it's, it's just important to make sure we're, Apples are apples and we're not making grapes apples uh, for lack of a better term or lack of a better analogy. For the, well, you've really completely mishmashed that analogy, which I suppose is in itself analogous of the fact that benzodiazepines are not the same. I think also, Fergal, we should um, make mention of the fact that Overdose and sedation are compounded when we take benzodiazepines with other drugs, and in particular, I'm yeah. talking about opioids. Would you Absolutely. care to expand a bit on that topic? Yeah. So there's 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 been a lot of literature written about how lethal this combination is. And so if we just go back to the Pennington Institute, they produce data every year on overdose deaths. And every year, really, uh, what comes out, uh, there's the top three causes of overdose, overdose deaths are, according to Pennington, always polysubstance, polypharmaceutical overdose, and then opioids and benzos. These are the top that causes of uh, overdose deaths in Australia. So that just highlights just how dangerous that combination is. And when we, when we look at um, you know, the, the evidence behind combining uh, opioids with benzodiazepines, we know that um, if you combine uh, opioids with benzos, you actually increase the risk of death by up to a factor of 10. And so, for instance, uh, in Victoria, SafeScript, identifies this combination as a high-risk combination, which, which needs to be dealt with. And I think, you know, it's really important not to be blasé, oh, just a small amount of benzoate, just a small amount of diazepam with someone's methadone or with someone's endone, just to help them through a tough time. There's no, it, there's no safe lowest-dose combination of opioids and benzos that you can guarantee won't cause a, a, an adverse event or respiratory depression. Having said that, on their own, remember I said to you earlier on that benzodiazepines were positive allosteric modulators, therefore it didn't actually by themselves open the uh, chloride channel 
causing brain inhibition. It's it's actually been it's actually not yet been worked out. What is the lethal dose? The LD fifty of benzodiazepines. You know, we don't actually know how much benzos it actually takes to kill someone in the absence of any other intoxicating substance. So documented deaths uh, have invariably been associated with uh, combination hypnosedatives and also the use of you know very high potency benzodiazepines or very short acting benzodiazepines. Absolutely. And I guess, Fergal, just to round out this episode of Cracking Addiction, could we just briefly touch on the, the, the kinetics of, of diazepam and, and how diazepam actually is broken down by the liver and, and the metabolism of, of benzodiazepines? Sure. So if you ever get asked which enzyme in the liver metabolizes any drug, drug X, all, and, you don't, and you've got no idea, always say CYP3A4 because you've got a 50% chance of being right. Half of all drugs are metabolized by CYP3A4, and it's the biggest enzyme system in the, in the liver, in the body. So there you are. Lo and behold, benzodiazepines are metabolized by CYP3A4. Now, that's the, uh, ox- the transformative oxidative reaction. Now, benzos undergo two types of reaction in the liver. They go through the transformative reaction, oxidation, which then makes them a little bit soluble. And then they go to, through the attachment reaction, which is the addition of a glucuronide molecule, which then further increases their solubility. And then benzodiazepines are excreted in water-soluble bile. So really, you've got to understand that all liver kinetics, all, all it does is basically convert a lipid-soluble to a water-soluble drug. Because remember, when drugs get absorbed in the body, they have to pass through the gastrointestinal tract, which means they have to be lipid-soluble. And then when they're water-soluble, sorry, when you need to excrete them either in bile, which is water-soluble, or in urine, which is water, they need to be transferred into water-soluble substances. So this very complicated process of converting a lipid-soluble drug into a water-soluble drug to then enable excretion, most of that is done by the liver. And in the case of diazepam, it's two reactions. Transformative oxidation followed by glucuronidation, which is further solubilization. That's also what happens to most benzodiazepines. However, there are some benzos that actually don't undergo phase one metabolism. And these drugs are, I can remember them by transient loss of consciousness. Benzodiazepines can cause a transient loss of consciousness. So TLOC stands for temazepam, lorazepam, oxazepam, and clonazepam also has slightly different kinetics. But certainly temazepam, lorazepam, oxazepam, they have no oxidative uh, transformative reactions. So um, what that means is that they are they they don't undergo phase one, they only undergo phase two, which means People with precarious liver function, such as those who are elderly or those with liver disease, it's safer to use those benzos that don't undergo phase one metabolism in that clinical situation, because otherwise you would run the risk of uh, accumulation. And that's why we use oxazepam in Australia, usually for, for alcohol withdrawal management in patients with liver disease or in patients who are elderly. So, Fergal, you've just told us about the, um, the excretion of diazepam. So what shows up in a urine drug screen? If you do a urine test and you've taken diazepam, there's, uh, there's a couple of substances, more, well, three or four substances that can show up. So you can have nordiazepam, temazepam, oxazepam. 
So temazepam and oxazepam are active, as, as, as we all know. But so it's so basically, it's really important to understand that diazepam's metabolites are active, and this also highlights the point that uh, oxazepam and uh, temazepam don't undergo phase one reactions. They only undergo phase two reactions because, remember, they are themselves the product of phase one reactions. So that's how diazepam ends up in urine, and that's why we end up with the multiplicity of substances in a urine sample that can all derive from one parent molecule, i.e. diazepam. That was a great summary, Fergal, and I think that's a great place to, to leave this introductory episode on benzodiazepines, where we've talked about benzodiazepines, the different drugs within the class of benzodiazepines, the pharmacology, the pharmacokinetics, and the metabolism. So it's been an information-packed episode of Cracking Addiction. Thanks for your attention, and bye for now. Music